So on Wednesday, I, uh, I had to go down to James Bay, and I, I decided to bike down to James Bay and back, which was a good idea in the morning and a bad idea in the afternoon. Uh, in the morning, it was really nice, and then in the afternoon, it was just sheets of rain. So, yeah, I'm, I'm learning about how to bike in the rain and learning how to cycle in the rain. Uh, but I, I, it's full-on tourist season down in the Inner Harbor already, and so as I was kind of biking around the wharf and government area, I was noticing, uh, I was noticing everybody's kind of pulled out all the stops as far as, like, selling stuff. And if there's one thing that keeps coming up again and again and again in the selling, it is the word handmade. Handmade art. Handmade furniture. Handcrafted beauty products at Lush. Uh, handmade wool sweaters from Ireland. I assume just totally like hand pulled straight off the sheep or something like that. Um, the one that got handmade fudge and gelato. I get a little worried about that one. And, and the reason is because if, if I was hand making those things, I have a feeling I would be doing a lot of sampling while I was hand making those things and I cannot get it out of my head that the person that is doing that might also kind of be thinking the same thing. So, you know, take that for what you will when it's handmade fudge, you know, does that also mean that it was checked a lot while it was handmade? I don't know. But the draw to the idea is, is if you see something that is proclaiming to be handmade, that the seller is basically saying, look, this didn't come off some computerized assembly line. This is not some faceless mass production. A person has personally invested in it at some point, and hopefully to give it greater quality or, or to give it better aesthetics, you will appreciate it. And, of course, it also sometimes means this also makes it worth the ridiculously high price tag, so buy it anyway. But the idea of something being handmade has completely different connotations in the world of Jesus and in the world of, of, of ancient Israel, okay? The time that Stephen is speaking Handmade means something really, really different. For them to say something is made by hand is to imply that it is not made by the hand or the influence or the dictation of God. It is not a divinely ordained thing. It's just a human invention. And when you apply that to something that is given authority or power, or even worse, when you apply it to something that's given worship, that's about as bad as something can get. Okay, The primal sin in all major Jewish writing, it all comes back to idolatry. Attributing glory and worship to something, anything other than Yahweh, the creator of all. And all other sin is going to flow out of that base transgression, right? That's, that's the understanding of how sin works. And that's, honestly, that's our, that, that should be our understanding of how sin works. Sin doesn't just happen in your life. Sin happens when you begin by attributing worship or priority or power to things other than God in your life. That's where it starts. And if you want to deal with sin in your life, you have to go back to the source and deal with it there. But you have to understand that, that both then and now, the way that an idol is produced is through human effort and handiwork. And the Old Testament writers, especially the prophets, they rail on the absurdity of this time and time again. My favorite is Isaiah 44. If you haven't read this, you need to go read this because it just seems, it makes idolatry seem so silly. So there's this guy 
and he goes and he cuts down a tree and he limbs it and he drags it out of the forest and takes it back to his camp and he sections it off into pieces and he takes one piece of it and chops it into firewood to cook his meal. And then he takes another piece of it and he chops it into firewood so that when he's done with his meal, he's able to keep the fire stoked. And now he's sitting there and he's like, oh, this is so great. Like, I had a great meal and and my belly's full and I'm warm by the fire. I still got this like little section of log left. And he starts to whittle at it and he starts to play with it and he starts to work on it and he starts to fashion it. And the next thing you know, he's got a little statue and he puts it up next to the fire and goes, rescue me for you are my God. That's supposed to be funny. You laugh at that. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. If he wants the fire to be warmer, he can just go pitch that thing right in there with it and have another couple hours of warmth at the firewood. But instead, he's going to bow down to it and say, worship, you know, rescue me for you are my God. That seems so absurd. It seems so funny. The nonsense of it is almost comical. You manufacture a God and then you willingly submit yourself to it. How nuts is that? And yet, the point that Isaiah is making is you can look at that and be like, how silly and stupid is that? And yet, that is the story in Israel over and over and over and over again. That is the story of Israel. Is that they, 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 they fashion, they manufacture gods and then willingly submit themselves to them. Okay? And, and, and yet, by the time we get to the first century... There seems to have come to this point in the Jewish thinking where they're like, okay, we, we finally have it, okay? No more idols. We get it. The exile, we, like, we got it, okay? No more idols. No other gods before me. I think we finally got this thing down. No more Baal. No more Asherah. No more Greek and Roman deities. We got it. We're good. We are faithful Israelites now. And so this charge from Stephen, at the, like, where he just starts railing on him out of nowhere is what it kind of feels like. You know, stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts, you know. That really seems to kind of come out of nowhere. It really doesn't seem to be, it really doesn't seem to match with what he's been saying to them this entire time. It, it actually kind of seems offensive. Unless there's something else going on that we, that we may not understand. If, if, if they, if Israel is still engaging in idolatry, if that's how they're resisting in the Holy Spirit, then, then we've got to ask, like, how does that happen if there, if there are no other gods? How does that happen if they're so zealous for the law? How does that happen if they're, if they're, so, um, if they're so on about the holiness of the temple, that there have been political revolts over the sanctity of the temple? Like, what's going on there? Where is Stephen coming from? Where are these words that we read this morning coming from? Because without it, 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 they seem unanchored. They just seem kind of like angry. And, and, and I've, seen, I've seen people and we've seen people in the history of, of, of the church and in the history of Christianity actually take these things and twist them into some very, very unholy ways. And so I want to get back to the heart of what's going on here and the heart of, of, of where is the Holy Spirit in all of this? Okay? If we go back to the beginning of the conflict between Stephen and the religious leaders at the end of Acts 6... It's not just that the accusations seem to be coming out of nowhere from Stephen. They seem to come just straight out of nowhere from the religious leaders, but, but not really. Not really. 
one of their real rubs is that Stephen is expanding the radius of the influence of the followers of the way. Up until now, the, the 12 apostles have basically confined the teaching to the temple courtyards where, where the leaders can keep an uneasy eye on them, okay? But, but Stephen, it says, is going out into the Greek synagogues all around Jerusalem, okay? And there's a couple of really important things to understand, okay? One, not, not only is he just kicking chicken and, and persuading people that Jesus is the Messiah, he's just doing really good at that, and nobody's, able to, nobody's really able to refute him, okay? But the big shift now is that the gospel is not just challenging the established power structure up in the temple. It is overturning worldview. It is now changing the understanding of what it means to be a faithful Israelite. That's what Stephen is arguing now. It's not just, hey, you religious leaders, you crucified the Messiah. It's, no, no, no. If you are a faithful Israelite, you will pledge to follow Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene. If you haven't done that, you are not actually being faithful to the call to be Israel. That's a big problem. That's a big problem because now you're challenging stuff that's been in the works for like hundreds of years, okay? And so, it's a, like I said, it's a much deeper threat. And, and given Stephen's spirit-empowered like proficiency at debate... The only real options are either to concede that the guy might have a point or to start slinging mud. And so what are you going to do? You're going to start slinging mud. And it's a particularly condemning kind of slop that they start slinging at Stephen because when you accuse someone of blaspheming the law and the temple, these are the trumped-up charges that come out, when you accuse somebody of doing that, well, the law was given by who? God. And the temple was given by who? God. So if you're blaspheming those things, what are you actually doing? You're actually blaspheming God. Guess what, guess what happens when you blaspheme God in ancient Israel? We throw rocks at you until you're dead. Okay? That's punishable by death. This is not, so this is not just like, this is not just being mean or cruel, or this is not like, like political mudslinging, okay? Like this is, this is serious stuff. And if this is serious stuff, if this is a death sentence, if these charges stick, you would think that you wouldn't want your defense against those charges to include phrases like stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. If you want to get out of this alive. Now, even though Stephen seems to have, he's described as having the face of a messenger of God. So there's, there's kind of this cool, calm, collected, yet confident vibe on him to everyone around him at this trial in front of the religious council, I think we can rule out the idea that he's got a death wish, okay? It's not really what's going on here. We've got to look at the whole argument in chapter 7 to see how he gets to this point. As I see it, Stephen's got three options for his defense, okay? The first one is this. You just deny the charges because they're not true. It's totally false. They're like, well, we've heard him say, well, I got, I got just as many people here that'll say that I haven't. Okay, you've got your witnesses, I've got my witnesses. Let's go through the witnesses. And you handle it like that. So you can handle it like a normal trial, or you can do what Peter's done, because they've come a couple of times and said, you know, by whose, by whose authority do you do this? How do you explain this? Is this true? And Peter just sidesteps the whole issue and goes, really what we're on trial here is, is that we believe in the resurrected Christ and we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit for healing. 
What are you going to do with that? Can you, can you claim that he hasn't been resurrected when all of these people are like we've seen him? Can you claim that the healing that's happening, and Stephen's doing the same healing, if you've noticed, can you claim that that's not, that would just totally, the, the, the religious council's been spinning on that ever since Jesus got him between a rock and a hard place going like, well, fine, then where was John's baptism? Was it, was it from man or was it from God? And they're like, ah, if we say that it's from God, then we have to acknowledge everything that he said was true. If we say that it's from man, then we basically would deny what looks like ordained healing totally in line with scripture. Either way, we got a riot on our hands. Uh, and so they're like, we don't know. And Jesus is like, fine, then I'm not going to tell you by whose power I'm doing all this stuff. But you already know. You just don't want to admit it. So Stephen could do that too. He could just do what Peter's been doing and appeal to the resurrection and appeal to the healing power. And, you know, it's like, it's like a mistrial. But he's going to take a third option, okay? And it's the one that I don't, I, I mean, it's got to be Holy Spirit inspired because I, I wouldn't have seen it coming. I don't know if anybody would have seen it coming. The religious leaders definitely don't see it coming. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, he's going to go ahead and take the bull by the horns. And like the prophets of old, he's going to flip the table on his accusers. And instead of, he's going to refuse to defend his position. And he's going to say, okay, you want a trial? We want a trial? Great, let's have a trial. But I'm the prosecuting attorney now. You know what's really on defense here? You don't want to know what's really on trial here? You know what you really need to prove? Not my integrity on how I speak about Yahweh or Moses or the temple. What's truly on trial here is whether Israel has actually purged themselves of idolatry or not. Nobody saw that one coming. Okay? And he says, your guilt is rooted in the fact that you don't know how to even interpret your own history. The reality of, you know, if you, if you, if you knew your own story, Israel, then the reality of what God has done in Christ would be perfectly evident. So, I'm going to tell it to you again. And I'm going to tell it to you so that you can understand why Jesus makes sense and why what you're doing does not and why really it's you who's on trial Israel not me and so this is where he goes his starting point is not the garden his starting point is God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that's for a couple of reasons okay one it's the start of Israel's identity it's the covenant it's 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 where all of everything about who Israel will be is rooted but it's also the start of God's reclamation plan for creation humanity those two things are tied together and they're older than Moses in the law so they should have more priority Israel doesn't exist for their own ends they never have is what Stephen is saying and and and, and you know far from denying their purpose Steve is Stephen is insisting that they have a greater purpose that they were made for a purpose he's, he's like I'm not blaspheming I'm not saying that the, that the law and everything that comes doesn't have purpose and doesn't have shape. It has a great shape. You guys have just missed the point. Genesis 15 also foretells the enslavement and the redemption in Egypt. And so already we're kind of in a roundabout way framing this argument about like, no, 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 I've, I'm giving great priority to Moses. I know from the very, very beginning, God was ordaining things for Moses to come and rescue us, you know, like hundreds of years in advance. But then he goes and he makes a stop on the way. He doesn't just go straight from Abraham to Moses. He stops at Joseph, 
which doesn't make any sense unless you look at the way that he talks about Joseph. Okay? Because here's, here's what happens with Joseph. He talks about the fact that none of the story is going to progress without the betrayal and the exile of Joseph. Okay? The, the critical story of Joseph. He gets rejected and exiled by his own family, but God uses him as a keystone in his plan to get Israel to where they need to be. And eventually the brothers who rejected him jealously and violently, they have to humbly come and humble and go back to him and repent in order to receive life, right? They're, they're going to starve where they are. And so they have to go to Egypt and they have to like basically fall on the mercy of Joseph. And Joseph loves them and is merciful and forgives them and gives them what they need. He is gracious and he gives abundantly. And Stephen's kind of showing his hand early, isn't he? Right? If you know even the littlest bit of Bible here in this meeting, you already know where he's going in this trial, but he's just getting warmed up on his run to the pitch, you know? So Stephen's been accused of going soft on Moses and the law. Okay? Fine, fine. He says, let's go to Moses. Let's, let's go to Moses then. Okay? What we have to realize is that there's an understanding there that the law is the thing. It is fixed. It is the thing that gives the shape to the people of Israel. That's, that's the understanding that, that he's fighting against. That's, that's still an understanding now. So what do we see in the story of Moses? How is Stephen going to portray the story of Moses? There's three things that become immediately important, okay? First... Moses, like Abraham, like Joseph, has been specifically raised up and empowered by God for the purpose of continuing God's plan to restore the world through Israel. Okay? So already, he's speaking of Moses in very high regard. Moses was you know, raised up by God at just the right time. In these circumstances, God's hand was on him, spared him, had him become raised up in the household of Pharaoh so that he was the epitome of of everything, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, was the epitome of everything that, that we needed in order to have a person who would be God's agent to rescue us. So he speaks very, very highly of Moses. Like, look, if you think I'm blaspheming Moses, I'm not. Here's my proof, okay? And then second, okay, Moses also is the means in which a new and major transition in Israel's identity comes that nobody saw coming. Nobody, everybody, you know, Egypt's the center of the world at that point in time. Nobody's looking for a burning bush out in the wilderness of Midian. Nobody. Moses isn't even looking for it. Moses thinks that it's all done, right? And yet it's out on the outskirts, it's out on the outside, it's out where nobody's looking, that God shows up and everything changes for Israel forever right? And so he takes that point and brings it in. He says, look, God specifically raised him up, but God also, God also used him and did something in a way that nobody was looking for. Nobody was looking for God in the wilderness. Everybody was looking for God in Egypt. And in the wilderness is where he shows up, and in the wilderness is where he delivers the law, and in the wilderness is where he delivers the tabernacle. It's out there. It's not in here. It's not at the center of things. It's out on the outside. Oh, really? 
And then sandwiched in between two of these, Moses, like Joseph, is the rejected rescuer, isn't he? I mean, we have to gloss over a little bit of like, well, he actually kind of was, was running out in front of God when he did this, right? But, like, Stephen's kind of working it to make a point, right? Like, look, God's hand was on him. God raised him up. God had him in the perfect position. He feels the stirring of, 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 of seeing what's happening and the oppression of the Israelites. He rejects all of his Egyptian background and chooses to stand with Israel we're going to kick off this revolution, and the next day he comes out and sees mistreatment and says, guys, you know, like, what's going on? Like, you're brothers. You should love each other. And the response is what? Who made you ruler and judge over us? <laughs> Who indeed? <laughs> Who indeed? Who had already made Moses ruler and judge over everybody? God had. But he's rejected. And so Stephen's already turned the tables and said, look, our ancestors have basically shown less honor to Moses than I am now. Okay, it wasn't, and that wasn't even just that time. They repeatedly reject him in the wilderness. It, even after all the plagues, even after the parting of the sea, even after he's like, you know, speaking to rocks and waters coming out of him and, you know, plagues and all this stuff, they repeatedly reject him. They repeatedly try to like, you know, go their own way. And don't listen to God. And he's like, look, if, we, if anybody's guilty of not honoring Moses and the law, it's our ancestors. It's not me. It's the people that you are holding up high. Not me. And he says, the reason that Israel's the one of, the reason that this is guilt is important is because I am the one that sees the pattern and the direction of this going from Joseph to Moses and the law and, and, and to the prophets and all the way through the John the Baptist and into our time. And now God has actually sent not a prophet, not one foretelling the righteous one. He actually sent the righteous one. The fulfillment of Moses and the law, raised up by God to be the redeemer to move Israel to the finish, to move them the way that Moses moved them through the law, Christ has come to move you to the fulfillment of the law and, and, and to finish the plan that was started in Abraham. But we've done the exact same thing that our forefathers did and we rejected him. We rejected him violently. We were jealous and we exiled him. And, we, and this time we didn't exile him to the wilderness, we exiled him to the cross outside the town. We sent him out, but we sent him out to the cross. But he has returned, full of the Spirit's power, and he's ready to offer you mercy. On the charge of blaspheming Moses and the law, Stephen is innocent, Israel's guilty. That's the first part of the trial, okay? But what about the temple? What about the underlying, and, and, and with it, the underlying question of idolatry? Because they're like, how would we be idols? All we have is the temple. <laughs> Here, Stephen does something really surprising. He readily admits that he's spurning the temple but not in the way that the leaders think. Instead of calling it unholy, instead of calling it a waste, he's actually positioning the temple in its right place, saying it's incomplete, it's fixed, it's limited, it's temporal, it can be destroyed. It already has been once. Okay? It is incapable of housing the presence of God the way that you insist. 
And yet, even in the light of God's interaction with humanity, in light of the story throughout the Old Testament, you want to keep him and you want to keep his law safely bound up in the physical structure of the temple. And this is not a new problem, he says. It's been ingrained in Israel from the beginning. And this is where, this is where things really start to take a turn for that whole lake fiery preacher tone for Stephen. He uses the prophet Amos. It's this really interesting this really interesting section in Amos where he's like, look, you guys talk about being faithful, you were never faithful. Stephen reminds them, even in this honeymoon period out in the wilderness with God, not only were they rejecting Moses repeatedly, but they were rejecting the tabernacle repeatedly. He brings up that they couldn't handle God's presence with them. And you'd think we'd go to the golden calves, but he doesn't just stop at the golden calf when God's up on the mountain And they can't handle the presence of God on top of the mountain, so they're making the calf to try and contain it. They're saying, throughout the wilderness, even when when you had the tabernacle, the resting place of God's presence in the center of the camp, with the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night that was letting you know that God's presence was right there in your middle. He was accessible to you. He was available for you. He was was able to be worshipped. Somehow God was even allowing himself to be contained there for your benefit, even though he says, I am the God who can't be contained. You're going off and sacrificing to these two gods, Moloch and Rephon. I don't even know who they are. I don't even know what they're about. But even he's, the point is, is, even from the beginning, the people of God loved to box in God, whether it was tabernacles or calves of gold or high places or temples or what have you, and then leave him so that they could go worship other things and then come back. And for those that, Stephen, those that Stephen confronts, their belief is that only on Mount Zion, only within the temple, it's only there that the intersection of heaven and earth happens. That the gateway is there. And here's the thing. If it's there, then conversely, it's not anywhere else. It's exclusive. It's limited. It's bound up. You've effectively handmade a structure that you say contains the presence of God and you direct all your devotion toward it. What is that called? Oh no. This is where the rocks start coming out, okay? Because what he's basically said is you have not banished idolatry, Israel. The temple is your new idol. The place where you can safely wait for the presence of God to return and reside and then leave to go sacrifice to whatever it is you feel like sacrificing to and come back. The problem is, is that God has never truly dwelt in handmade things. The tabernacle, the temple, those were concessions, not the end goal. Stephen says those were never the end goal. Like, why would God say, well, why would God even say to David, like, look, I made all of this. You know, how on earth are you going to build a house for me? How are you going to build a place that's going to contain me? Like, even, even, as, even as David and, and, and the Lord are talking about this, David is painfully aware that, like, what I'm doing is just a feeble concession to trying to, like, display your majesty and glory, okay? Like, I get that, okay? And while David got that, and we hope that Solomon got that, it's obvious that now they don't get that anymore, because they think they can effectively box up the presence and the power of God in the temple and then go do whatever they want and then come back and worship at the temple. 
And, and here's, here's, mm, here's the thing. God only dwells in things made by his hand. And the temple that he desires to inhabit is the hearts of humanity. But the children of God won't let him. And, and, and this, is, this, is where the, this is where the fiery accusation comes out. This is where he can say, you stiff-necked people, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Is because of what they know and what he knows, which is the fact that God did come. God did come in his temple. The form of Jesus. That was the only thing that could help. It was God-made, not human-made, Right? It's not a handcrafted temple. It's a God-crafted temple, the fusion of the divine and human completely. And here comes Jesus, the true temple of God, into the temple. And you kill God so that you can keep worshiping your idol. That's why he's not pulling any punches is he is trying without a doubt to get them to realize you need to understand where the whole story was going. The whole story was going with God coming into the temple. But when he came to the temple, you weren't ready to handle him. And once again, you couldn't handle the real presence of God, and so you exiled him in order to keep worshiping your idol. But he is back full of the Holy Spirit and ready to bring you mercy. What are you going to do with that? You see, I'm not the one who's on trial. Israel, you're the one that's on trial. Children of God, you're the one that's on trial. And instead of being convicted by their story, they're going to repeat it. They're going to kill another messenger. The question is that we really need to ask, though, is what about you and me? Where, where am I in this story? Where do I stand in this courtroom? Whose side am I judged to be on? Whose side are we judged to be on? You see, because like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, our idolatry may have become more sophisticated, but it's never far from us as an option now, is it? In fact, the more familiar I am with God, the more familiar I become with him, the easier it becomes, it seems, to handcraft physical or theological temples to safely house him away. That's the problem. Where, where, where this word needs to speak to us is, is do we cram him into a box at 3460 Shelburne Street and leave him here. And then go out and worship prosperity or success or recreation or approval of others or family or, or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Okay, whatever else it is that we've deemed worthy of our devotion. Do we do that? Do we assume that heaven and earth only intersect between 10 a.m. and noon on Sunday, or 9 a.m. and noon if we're really holy and we come to class. Not that I wouldn't want to see more of you there. But the point is, is do we 
in the spirit of the children of God, in the spirit of Israel, do we engage in the practice of resisting the Holy Spirit and living with stiff necks and uncircumcised hearts because we are not actually allowing God to inhabit our temple to go with us and inhabit all of our places and spaces and, and anything our whole life. And instead, we're going to keep him over here. And like Israel, we're going to, okay, we're going to leave you there. We're going to go live our lives. And then we're going to come back and worship you because you are God, but not now, but yes, now. God was never satisfied with that. Holy Spirit was never satisfied with that. He was not satisfied with it then. He will not be satisfied with it now. That question should totally shatter our world the way that it did Stephen's accusers. But hopefully, instead of repeating our stories, we will learn from them. Right? Amen? Last thought, we use the word martyr to talk about Stephen. And, and, and while it means witness in a sense of affirm, affirmation that this is more than belief for him, okay, it's, it's reality, we also see him embody this word of witness in a, in a very physical, very real way. He actually sees this vision of heaven and earth truly intersecting. And, 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 and when, I, when I imagine this, it's, I imagine it's not like he's looking up far off in a way and is like, oh, look, I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, way far away up there, okay? Here, here's what I think it is. Um, it, it's, it's more like a fog I got into while hiking with a friend in the Olympic Mountains one year when I lived in Washington. The fog was so thick, I could barely see him like 30, 40 feet away, okay? So, like, I'm, if I'm here and he's out by, like, where Ivan was, I could, I could not even see him. The fog was so thick. And then something happened. All of a sudden, this breeze kind of whipped in on us as we're hiking, and it just pulled it away. I don't, I don't even know why, I, I mean, but it happened within the span of, like, minutes. Like, not even long at all. And I go from like this pea soup fog to where I can't see anything to where not only can I see him and not only can I see the trail, but I can see the peaks and the valleys and everything. And I go from not being able to see anything to being able to see everything. And I think that's probably what this was. Stephen is being condemned to death by the earthly court and right in the middle of it, the heavenly court opens up right in front of him. And instead of being condemned to death in the heavenly court, he sees the Son of Man standing as his advocate, judging him innocent, judging him righteous, judging him to life, not death. Because the real intersection of heaven and earth is not the temple courtyard that he's standing in being condemned to death in. It is the Holy Spirit-empowered heart that he is submitted himself to. And in that, the Son of Man says, I judge you to life. I judge you to life eternally. I judge you innocent. And Luke opens this up to us so that we can see the holy validation, the verdict that God gives, that temples and laws and pious figures, these will always fail to contain the true essence of God's glory. His only selected temple is the tamed and willing heart of the disciple. And when we allow that, when we allow him under, unhindered access to our heart, when we allow the Holy Spirit to actually fill us, we, like Stephen, have the ability now to see the intersection of heaven and earth all around us.
and the invitation to enter into it and participate in it. The gospel is this. The righteous one is still standing at the right hand of God as our advocate, even though we rejected him. The intersection of heaven and earth is still open to us, even though we have rejected it for handmade shrines. And so church, let us do the thing that God, through Stephen, desired for his listeners to do. Throw down the handcrafted idols, whatever they are. And to come to the God of glory who is ready to transform us through his mercy and to give us what we truly need because what we truly need is his Holy Spirit. What we truly need is his unhindered presence in our lives. And so let us do the work of confession at the table. Let us do the work of repentance at the table. Not just a repentance that says, I'm sorry for my sin, but a repentance that says, I, I submit myself to your Holy Spirit. Come into me, change me, transform me. Let us do that work together today. As we worship, as we come to the table, as we go out together. Let's not leave him, let's not assume that we should leave him here and go out together. He wants to come with you. Let him come with you. It's what he desires more than anything else. Just to come out into your every place and your every space. So let's let him do that today. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship.